Well, we are really thankful. I'm really thankful. Um, and knowing that we have an extra audience online as many of our volunteers are, are doing their mandatory isolating. So thankful we could adjust. Um, my, my wife jumped in to lead music uh, as we were on Plan D. And when that fell through, I simply said, well, we'll play a CD. And my wife overheard from the other room and said, no. Uh, so you can say thanks to her. I'm really glad that she's doing that. And uh, thankful for everyone joining us online. What we're going to be doing this morning, uh, as I'm kind of alluding to the fact that we've had to adjust, uh, we're pausing our series in Esther, opening up our Bibles uh, to really what has been uh, the sermonette that I've been sharing with a lot of you over coffee or on the phone. Uh, and, it, it, and the irony of this doesn't elude me that in a season where we've reached out to our church to say um, we recognize the challenges, the fears, the inconvenience that we are all walking through and we want to hear how that's impacting you, share how that's impacting our church and how we are going to move forward. Um, that, that we are rocked by it. We've been preparing for this for two years, so don't, don't worry. We're taking it in stride. Um, that, that we would actually pause our series and speak to it a little bit more directly. So I hope that's okay. Uh, so for those of you who are really enjoying the series, don't worry. Next week, uh, we're picking up right where we intended to next week. Uh, and Corey will be sharing with us. But for today, uh, actually speaking to the church. What is it? What it does? And the one who makes it possible. And we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Peter. So I hope you have your Bibles. Bibles? Yes? Awesome. Love that. Especially because I'm throwing a curveball at you if you were like, I read ahead this week. Um, we're going to be opening up to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I'm going to read from my actual Bible because whatever I read this first service was actually not the right text. Uh, so hopefully you got the right text behind me. Everyone was so gracious. They're like, okay, he's preaching a new Bible today. This is the actual Bible. So 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 to 12, and then 20 to 25. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that, has been, uh, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Verse 20. For what credit is to you if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is great, a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, I've alluded to the fact that, that we're pausing uh, a series to, to speak, not, not just to a situation, but I hope to encourage our hearts as a church family. Uh, because one thing, and, and the irony is not lost on me, um, after 15 years in ministry, when, when I was... Uh, younger, and, and as I first came into uh, faith and following Christ, the idea of the church seemed outdated, and actually that's being rather polite. I, I, I saw it as non-essential, not, not connected to the culture, and, and not helpful for me. Just give me a Bible and, and resources, and I'll be fine. And it's to that attitude, it's to that posture, it's to that inclination, I think, that is not just in our culture, but inside many of us that I want to speak to this morning. I want to challenge it. And, and I said this last week, I'm going to say it again, this is not to sound lazy, but that you would actually know who is influencing my heart. Um, you're going to hear a lot of Keller and C.S. Lewis today, because these, these are the guys I'm reading and listening to, and, and they just say it better, so I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, but, but one of the things in this is we're talking about the church, because there's, we're in a season as a church where there's a lot of confusion to, to who we are, what we're, we're about, what we should do. That's really the undertones of, of what we threw out to you as an opportunity to speak back to us as elders, um, is we're just feeling that in a very tangible way, where the issue is not the issue. The issue is more of what, what does the church do in a season like this? And so I, I, this is kind of a fleshed out version of the, the sermon coffee conversation that I've been having with many of you already, and, and I hope it's an encouragement to our church. And so again, we're, we're looking at the church, how it's built, what it does, and the one who makes it possible. So, so how it's built. Go, go to verse 5. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That, that's referring to the temple. The temple is something uh, rooted in the, the, the overarching theme and understanding that we get as God's people from the Old Testament into the New that is deeply impactful to us and that we need to kind of anchor ourselves in this morning. The, the idea being that the temple was always at the center of God's people. From the moment it's kind of introduced, it's as you move as a body and as I lead you as your God, the temple where I dwell is anchored in the center of where you are in your gathering. God's presence is at the center. And as the people moved into it as a nation, that God was at the center of the center of his people where he dwelt and where he sat enthroned. And we see that movement coming into greater meaning and fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus, who it says that when he came in flesh, the, the, the phrase that we're given, which doesn't really land for us, but it does in light of the temple, it says that he tabernacled among us. That's the idea of, of he became present and indwelt among us to be with us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That's Jesus come in, in humanity, in flesh, that he would essentially put on our jersey to fight for our team. 
where we are having a losing battle. And then we also know that as he approaches the fulfillment of his work, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, he points to the person of the Holy Spirit saying, he's, he's going to fill you. In fact, he tells his disciples, this is going to be even better for you because you won't just have me, but, but I'll be in you and I will dwell you and for, uh, dwell in you. And some of you are already kind of doing a, a hyperlink jump in your minds to 1 Corinthians 6, which says that the, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. But, but we need to be mindful, especially speaking into a very individualistic culture, that's the only time, or arguably the only time, where it sounds like an individual reference for the filling of the Spirit in relation to God's people. Every other time in the New Testament, this is a communal and collective movement. We are given several pictures. The picture of the body, where God fills it and gives it breath, and we are his body. In other words, in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, it speaks to the, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the body, that, that these things cannot function in and of themselves. You sever a hand and, and let it be, it's dead. So no body or member of the body can say, I, I don't need you, you don't need me. It, it says actually in, in 1 Corinthians 12 that when one part suffers, the whole suffers with it. And as a building, as we see in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we just read, it's a building built up in living stones. That's an oxymoron. Kids, you know what that means. Parents, you forgot. When two things that are opposites are mashed up together, th these are breathing bricks. I, I think it was um, Dr. Lloyd-Jones who said, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. This is, is an image of, of God, and it's, a, it's an ongoing, a current and ongoing work that this is happening and will continue to happen, that this building, the temple of God, which is his people, filled with God's presence, his manifest glory, his ability to move and, and for us to experience him, is felt in the gathering, in the community, in relationship, in activity. And, and you can see that the trajectory in which I'm pushing here, nobody can say, no, I'm good on my own. It's actually through maturity and growth and the experience of the body of Christ that a member comes to understanding of this. Because I remember, again, alluding to how I started this message, coming into faith and going, I really just don't see how this very antiquated and kind of out-of-touch community has anything to do for me. And then I discovered through a course of maturity and actual ministry to realize, no, I, the body needs me and I need the body. Now, I, I know I'm kind of dancing around, and we're going to land in a moment on what is really a hot-button topic at this time, as I know many are watching online, some who can't be with us for legitimate reasons, some who are concerned on how to be with us, and others who are somewhere in between. And what we're speaking to in this moment is that the church is not for you, but you for the church. I love that, and yet it, it causes something to be uncomfortable inside of me, because that means, unlike every other thing in this culture, which I evaluate as, what do I get out of it? I need to reverse that and go, what do I give? What do I bring? I think C.S. Lewis says this well in a way that's very disarming for us. Uh, he recalls an event where he lost one of his friends amongst a group of friends in his book, The Four Loves. 
saying this of his deceased friend, saying, I didn't just lose my friend, but when I watched and observed the relationship I had with all of our mutual friendships, there was a piece or an aspect of my friend which I lost that only my deceased friend could bring out. And in that sense, there was many losses that he incurred with one loss of a friendship that was no longer there. I, I teased my wife in the first service, so in good fashion, I need to do it again. Um, if you know my wife, uh, you will know that she is a deeply sarcastic person. That is a sur- surprise to most of you. It's kind of our love language at, in our house. So when people come to the pastor's house, they're like, they're just mean to each other. No, that's just our affectionate talk. And, and when you come to know her and understand her, you, you delight in it and it comes out of you. And in fact, our closest friends, if my wife is not present, they'll say, I know what Rachel would have said. There is something there that, that if it's absent, it is missed and is heartfelt. Church, this is where as a pastor I can say this without feeling hypocritical or like I'm pulling on a fact that I just like having a full room. No, when you're not here, you are missed because you bring out something that only you can bring. And that speaks beyond your, to the gifts that you have in the Spirit, but actually the fact that you are living stones. And living stones, I, I would build into that imagery as they squirm, they fight, and they jostle about. There is a yielding into being built as much as there is a being built. Anchoring yourself. And so to what degree are you built up as the body? I I mean, I would challenge a culture. I would challenge those in the room as much as I would those who are possibly watching online. That to what degree are you present here? That if you were absent, it would be felt. If that's merely attendance or, or... Are you leaning into relationship where you are speaking into each other's lives, where you are actually gaining something and needing and requiring something from somebody else, or you are uh, providing that for somebody else? This is the picture of the church. It was meant to be radically communal, set apart from all other things that, that were not only in existence in the day, but throughout all history. This is the church. This is why this present day season feels so strange and has hit the community of God's people so uniquely is because this is actually how we're built up. Not just in the gathering. You can gather a lot of people that don't have concern for each other. But in the relationship. And I, I'm, I'm involved in church leadership and conversations where they're, you know, we're not me so much, but I'm listening in to others who are kind of prognosticating, what's the future of the church? And, and I was listening to somebody who was like, it's virtual. You know, uh, if you're familiar with Facebook's meta existence, where we're all going to go online, we're going to have avatars, and that's how we're going to gather. And, and, and there's something, uh, there's a big something inside of me which just pulls against that. Like, I never wanted to be online, period. And church, this is Aaron talking, not the elders board. One day we're going to shut it down. Not because we don't want those who are watching online to be present and to serve them, but because that's not what we felt called to do in the first place. And if that changes, I will be humble, repentant, and I will tell you. But I believe there's something about relationship that is needed, which is not felt. It, 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 there's a placeholder, possibly, but it's just not felt in a, in a way of saying, I'm hiding behind things. Vulnerability, authenticity. The idea of being Living stones, it's this idea of you, you bring something that holds up the whole. 
Your presence matters. Now, before I get too far down that road, let me encourage you this way. Um, when we talk about what it is, we, we need to be building that upon what it does. Look at uh, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Um, Peter, same Peter we know and love, Jesus' disciples, one who's got the big mouth, says a lot of things, and then uh, is memorable for it. He is writing this letter roughly 64, 65 AD, right on the front end of, of persecution that is going to ramp up for the early church for several decades to come. He's writing to the dispersion of Christian followers in Jesus around the Roman Empire and occupation. And he's speaking in a season where when he says sojourners, exiles, these are not people who are, are, are actually immigrants to the land or the cities that they're in. This is their home. That would be like saying to a third generation Calgarian, exile. He's trying to say something very provocative, and he's pulling off of um, a motif that's found in the Old Testament, the exilic period, um, that is very intentional here. He's saying, your primary citizenship and residency is in Christ. And wherever you find yourself, whether you've been anchored there for generations, you are now a landed immigrant. You are a resident alien. In other words, he's saying that there's, there's a disconnection here. At the same time, he's, he's saying, uh, but you're, you're to live honorably. This isn't, so this isn't a radical you know, pull away from community, or, or sorry, pull away from culture, but it's also not one of embracing it. So what is it? Actually, uh, and this is where I, I have to quote Keller. He does an excellent job teasing this out, so I'm just going to share it with you. Um, we know from anthropologists, sociologists, historians, that re religious groups and cultural groups throughout history, particularly in the ancient world, have chosen one of two ways of engaging with their culture. One, uh, and this is his language, he, uh, chaplaincy. That's the idea of conforming. We, we are the people. So to be this group of people is to have this faith. And the church operates in the, these ways. And, and then the opposite would be, uh, as in his language, was sectarian. I like the idea of, of separating. That, that we, we are going to be distinct. We, we are not the people. We are a distinct thing. And we, and we can understand and we can see how the church has kind of struggled or fallen into either sides of those perspectives. That we align with culture. You know what? Uh, we can be and do and we will you know, create and affect change from the inside. Or we are going to pull away. And we are going to, through uh, angry and furrowed brows, we are going to tell culture what's wrong with them. And yet we see that Peter is doing something distinctly different. The extremes of these positions are one that are united in power. What I mean by that is, so if you are identifying, if you are aligning with the culture, with society, it's very easy for you to uh, gain positions of authority, gain positions of influence and power. Why? Because they like you. They think you, you think like them. In fact, you do. And so, yes, you are going to have influence and authority and power. And it's going to be easy. 
The same is actually true for a, uh, a group that removes itself and acts separate. Why? Because then you can say, but look at us. We are, we are pure. We are doing what is right. We can rally the funds and, and get a movement going. We can be contrarian and in so doing gain power and authority. And yet uh, what Peter is offering in this text is something completely different. Saying, I'm actually inviting you, and he's pulling off of the imagery of the exile, uh, a period in the Bible where we actually find ourselves as we were reading in the book of Esther. It's actually kind of on the tail end of that. Where he says, as the prophet Jeremiah would say, when you find yourself in a foreign land as foreign people, plant gardens, build houses, invest, establish yourselves. Why? You're to have concern for the people. You're supposed to invest in the culture. You're supposed to improve the city, improve everything around you, and yet be distinct as God's people. You are resident aliens. That's the church. It's radically different. It relinquishes power. And it invites suffering because both of these extreme forms are really fundamentally a way of staving off suffering. The, uh, if you were to look at this from a psychological perspective, it's simply a, uh, I, I want to avoid things which are uncomfortable and so I move in a direction which protects me. And yet Peter says, no guys, uh, this is going to be hard. You're going to suffer. In fact, the passions that wage war in you are going to push you to either side, where you are going to, uh, you're going to assimilate or you're going to attack. And he's saying you can't do either. You've got to be right somewhere in the middle. And, and, and church, we don't get this right. I'm sharing this not just as a uh, speaking into the time, but actually speaking to how the church needs to position itself as a whole. And we will always be pulled and we will struggle from one side to the other. But the, the image is this. Consider the early church. Historians uh, actually can't agree, or, or even in their time didn't know how to agree on how to evaluate and consider the early church. There were those who were like, these people are tearing apart the fabric of Rome. They don't get it. They don't, they don't worship and live like we do. They don't celebrate and live as we do. They're tearing us apart from the inside. And then there was others who went, you know what, these, these are the most model citizens that we have. Maybe there's something to those Christians in fact, if you know your history, Constantine, uh, Roman emperor who finally, I shouldn't say finally, like it was the trajectory they're headed in, surprisingly uh, made Christianity the state religion. And whether you believe that was genuine conversion on his part or not, there was something about his decision which was, you know what, these people seem to be the most model citizens we have. Maybe we should rally around that. And historians still debate. But what was at stake? You know, consider alignment We've never had more loving people. We've never had more. These Christians, they don't just give charitably. They, they do so in great efforts, with great ability, that, that we've never seen the poor more taken care of. It, it's contrary, but in a way that's beneficial to the community. And, then, and yet radically contrarian. Couldn't celebrate. They were antisocial. Everybody in Rome celebrating uh, the events and the Colosseum and, and the bloody, uh, you know, gladiatorial kind of events of the day. And, and they would remove from it. What's wrong with you people? Don't you celebrate what we do? 
They wouldn't, they wouldn't fight. They wouldn't, they wouldn't um, elevate the leaders, and yet they were, were submissive to the, the things that they needed to do as citizens. This was a contrarian life. Um, contrary in, in the relationships, marriage, and keeping sex within marriage, n- not celebrating or adhering to uh, same-sex relationships. Th- these were all things in the culture, and yet the church was like, no, we're, we're going to be distinct from that. And in that place, they suffered. Suffered greatly. In fact, um, Peter writes to a time where it's not just ramping up. It's going to be the mainstay for the church for quite a season of time. And yet he tells them, anchor yourselves, be good citizens, invest. And you have to ask yourself, what does that look like for us today? I mean, we're in this season of, of do we assimilate or we, we attack? Do we, do we push back or, or do we go with the flow? And, and there's, there's propensity for, for both. And, and, and church, I'll say this again, speaking for myself, and we will always push for community. I, I invite you, if, you, if you go to, oh, and I, I put the bookmark in the wrong place. Oh, no, I didn't. Here we go. It's been one of those days. If you go open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 24, it says, And let us consider how we would stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, as uh, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as the day is drawing near. Now, what, what's interesting about that is it's likely written to a group in a time where, where they were growing lazy in their gathering. Lazy in their commitment to stir one another up, going, you know, I think I got this on my own. My theology is pretty tight. Uh, you know, I, I seem to know what's going on. You know, I, I've planted my, my belief, my faith in Jesus, and, and so I'm off to the races. And, and he's saying, don't neglect the habit of gathering together because you bring something that others need, and others have things that you need to keep you sharp. So we will fight for that which will be contrarian in a time where we're actually kind of invited to be as the most selfish we've ever been in society as a whole. And yet there are things that we're just not going to fight for because they don't matter. There are ways in which we can be respectable to one another that helps one another draw into community. If my wearing a, a mask helps you be in my presence, I will wear it with a smile. But you won't see it. Church, it's a difficult place for us, and it will be suffering. But in our suffering, here's what's wonderful about that, the promise that we see and what is true for the church throughout the ages. We will experience and have the manifest presence of God's peace, his leading, and ultimately his glory. We see that as a theme every time the church is considered as a gathering, which it is. We, we see that it says that you, this is John saying, people will know, and he's referencing Jesus, so that makes the quote even better. This is what happens when you don't stick to your notes. You, they'll recognize you as my disciples by your love for one another. It's not they will recognize that you're a Christian by how much you love yourself. That's culture. So, but that puts you in a position of suffering and compromise. And it also says that where two or three are gathered, that, that the Lord is with them. 
in their presence. That, that means you minister together. Um, I shared this as a prayer request last week, and I again will pray for this in our closing of our service. But if the dearly loved friends of ours, members of our church family, Matt and Crystal, had their baby girl after only days of life pass away, and tomorrow is their funeral. And I've, I've received so many texts saying, I'm praying for you that you have the words to say and what to say. And it's only after 15 years of ministry that I've come to an understanding. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what you say. It, it's your presence. It's your being. It's, it's the living stones coming together where the Holy Spirit ministers to those who are hurting. And actually minister to me as well as they have been encouraging my heart and how they are walking through this with great trust and integrity of God in such a difficult time. It's a tangible experience of how we're not meant to do that alone. So you cannot, you cannot console, you cannot help with a card and a like or a view online. You do that with your presence. And at times we are, we are hard-pressed and we do what we can, but what we need to do is actually press into one another. And we do that in such a way, what? That's going to cause us to suffer and suffer with one another. And in that we experience God's presence. Because he's the one who makes it possible. So let, let me um, bring us again to, to the text. Verse 6 and 8. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There, there is a, a reality that we need to accept. There is a, a repentance that we need to do in our own hearts to admit that we are all builders. We're all building something. That, that we're trying to create something for ourselves. I, I, and, and let's pick on what's safe before we get introspective here. We know that athletes who we think have, you know, physically, relationally, you know, financially, they've got it put together. These, you know, and, but when they retire, we, we see they... they they don't know who they are anymore. Whether that's through injury or the end of, of their career, we all know that age and gravity wins. And who am I when I'm not an athlete? As a youth pastor, I, we had some kids. They were the, the best and the brightest of their schools and their communities. They would come into our gatherings, and you could kind of sense this air of, you know, you're all kind of dumber than me. And I... I there was a little bit of vindictive delight in me when I saw them going to university into programs where everybody else was smarter than them. And who am I anymore? We've been building something, that, that this is who I am. It's not just my identity, it's, just, it's, it's how I'm rooted, it's my foundation. That's the image of a cornerstone. Think of uh, an era where building wasn't done by laying a concrete slab. It was you get the, the best stone that is going to hold up and prop up the rest of the building, and that is what dictates the building of the entirety that is to come. And it says that Jesus is the cornerstone, but for us to anchor ourselves, to root ourselves, to be on a foundation of Christ, we first have to remove all the foundations that we've built for ourselves. I, I mean, now consider yourselves. Where have you been building? Where do your energies and your focus go to? 
Again, I, I loved when I worked with teenagers because it was very much on the surface that one day they're dressed athletic and they're like, ah, this is my identity. I'm an athlete. And the next day they're like, whole thing changes. Like, well, today I'm, I'm, I'm going to be gothic. I don't know. That was cool back when I was a youth pastor. I don't even know these days. So when my kids are teenagers, I'll be understanding again. Uh, the, the idea is you could just see like this is just so fluid and not solid and it, and we're invited to build on the cornerstone that is Christ. But how do we do that? Look at the text. Verse 6. Chosen and precious. How does Christ become precious to you? How does he become so dear to you that you're like, no foundation, nothing else, just him? That this gospel works in so deep that it anchors you in the most difficult circumstances of life that you know that it, whatever the cost, it's okay. I have him. If, if you were dying and, and there was a terminal illness on your life and, and I came to you and said, you know, I've discovered, because the pastor has so much time and scientific smarts to discover a cure, but go with me on this. Um, I've discovered a cure for, what, for your illness and it's the one of a kind, but I'd love to give it to you, but here's the thing. It's incredibly expensive. It'll cost you your home. It'll cost you your car. It'll cost you everything. Your nice retirement. You can probably kiss that goodbye. Do you want it? And what will you say? Yes. Like, what good are those things to me? If I'm dead, I'll figure it out. Just whatever it costs, I'll take it. It has become the most precious thing to you. Jesus, our cornerstone, our foundation needs to be that. When we planted this church, I, I remember one of my closest friends, and he's probably watching online, he would get in my face on a regular basis and be like, Aaron, what is the foundation? What is the foundation? You have an opportunity to build from the ground up. What is the foundation? Don't make it about programs. Don't make it about advertising. Don't make it about your preaching. What is the foundation? It needs to be Christ. It needs to be his gospel. Because if it isn't, you will fall into a ditch. You will lead us into a problem. Things will go in a direction where you will not honor him, and it will all fall. Because bowed foundations, although we can prompt them up, we can do a little bit of repair work, eventually the building shows itself for what it is, and it falls over. See, I, I mentioned in the first service, I, I read the wrong text, so I want to bring us to the correct one. But if you open your text to verses 20 to 25, I shared with you a slogan that I know, it, it, it's the best marketing tool that you would ever hear, except for in the church, where I said that the, the you're not, sorry, that the church isn't for you, but you're for the church. That you were made for this. You put that on your gym. You put that on a, a membership of a club or a hobby group that you have. And man, like best marketing tool ever. Yes. Because that's going to drive me to be the best shape I've ever been. That's going to drive me to be the best participant I've ever been. That's going to drive me into this community like nothing before. But you're like, ah, but when I hear that from the church, it kind of grades. Why is that? It's because the imagery is this. It holds us to the model of our cornerstone. He himself who bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like straying sheep. But you've now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. The picture is this, that 
It's one of dying to yourself. It's one of suffering and relinquishing power as he did those things for us. That we would not just be our own. We have this imagery in our culture, don't we? Like, I'm a rolling stone. I just keep, you know, I don't gather any moss. I go do my thing. We kind of like that, right? You're independent, self-made man. Oh, awesome. And, and, and the gospel is calling you to something else. No, to be a living sacrifice, dead to yourself, a living stone built up in the body of Christ that you are not there for you or you're there for others, that the Holy Spirit might use and work in you and through you to do incredible things far beyond what you can imagine. Church, that's what we're calling you to. And it doesn't happen. When we give in to the things that say, let's assimilate to a culture that says, you don't need these things. Or attack it, which says, we'll get these things on our own strength. No, they're only provided as we press into Christ, the cornerstone, the one that was rejected, but the one who has become one who would be, that would make it so there's no shame for us. Let me, let me just land on that. I think this is a season where we've been very afraid of being wrong, looking wrong, getting canceled. And yet when we stand on the gospel, when we stand on Christ, his promise is this, there's no shame. I'm not going to cancel you. You're not going to look foolish, at least not to the one who counts. And I'm not a foundation that can be shaken, broken, or removed. I will stand firm. And so on him, we want to drive your hearts closer and closer. That would be so precious to you. And for those who are standing there, that you would be an encouragement to those who need to be built up as well. So let me pray, and then we'll sing together. So Father, thank you for this time. I imagine that I poked some hearts and some consciences this morning. And so, Lord, I pray, mend those towards a softness of growing together in Christ. Help us, Lord, as we recognize where we've been building on our own. The foundations we've established that are not of you. To set those things aside. And to align ourselves with Christ. Lord, forgive us of when the greatest invitation to be given purpose and family and meaning grades against us. It probably does because, Lord, we are inherently selfish. We're inherently sinful. And, Lord, ultimately we, we move in a direction that seems right to us. And that's probably why this season has been so confusing. So, Lord, we ask for wisdom and clarity. We ask for humility. And we ask, God, that you would do something uh, so powerful as you meet us as your people. So, Lord, would you hem us together as living stones, build us up as a royal priesthood for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.